Hello and welcome to Grow Up Summer School, an APG Canada podcast where we give strategic thinkers and creative tinkers opportunities to grow. I'm your host, Michelle Lee, and this week on the show, we'll be talking culture. Culture is one of the key ingredients to building any successful brand. For the next few days, we'll be exploring this topic from all different angles, from how to connect with niche groups to how to leverage TikTok to today's topic, how being a sneakerhead has made me a better strategist. Today, we're talking to John Crowley on sneakerhead culture. Just before we dive in, we'd like to give a special shout out to the team at Forsman Bodenfor for sponsoring today's episode. As one of Canada's leading supporters of strategic planning, they've shown a keen interest in continuing to help us foster and strengthen Canada's strategic talent. And for that, we thank you. Now let's get into the show. This is so much fun. Um, so I'm John Crowley. <laughs> I'm the uh, Vice President of Strategy at Diamond Marketing Group. And I've been uh, doing you know strategy things of various types across the industry centered in Toronto for the last 15 years or so. So it's a, a lot of fun to jump on. I've been involved in the APG on and off since uh, really early in my planning journey. And it's absolutely fantastic watching the community kind of grow and blossom and find new ways to engage people across the country and uh, internationally. Cool. Well, tell us about sneakers. First of all, how many pairs do you own? So at last count, it's around 120. I say around because my collection's gotten to the point where it's not all stored in one place anymore. There's actually some like large plastic bins up on shelves in my garage with extra shoes that no longer really have a home in my house or in my regular rotation, but that I'm not willing to donate anywhere yet. So around 120 is my best guess right now, which yeah, you know is more than anyone actually needs. Favorite pair? Can you even tell me? Um, it's a really tough one. My emotional favorite pair is the pair of uh, all black Air Jordan 1s that I wore during our wedding. Mm. But uh, I also have a pair of uh, the All-Star Game Air Jordan 1s that they released when the uh, NBA All-Star Game was hosted in Toronto. And that was a really exciting get for me. Like That's one of the few times I can remember really lining up and getting something because I knew it would be associated with a really positive memory. And when did this uh, fanaticism start <laughs> and how, why? So the, the guy who founded StockX in an interview years ago, StockX is like an online marketplace for trading limited edition goods. It started with sneakers. Years ago, he was interviewed and he said something that has really run true with me was that every sneakerhead has the exact same story, which is you were a kid and you loved sneakers, but your parents were sane people. So they'd only let you have one pair at a time. And now you're totally living out that young used dreams as an adult with their own money by buying more sneakers than any reasonable person should have. So it was very much a similar thing for me. I remember obsessing over every single pair of sneakers I got when I was growing up, when I was in school, and trying really hard to convince my parents that I needed the fancy ones that were more expensive, even though realistically, they're almost interchangeable with the much more affordable options that they would try to present me with. So I think some of it's wish fulfillment, but also some of it, I think, is uh, I'm kind of a collector by nature. And when I get interested in something, I tend to get really deep into the minutia of it. And sneakers are just a very great canvas for that kind of interest. Wow. Well, and I and I know you have a son. Have you started collecting? Like, how big is his shoe collection? Dare I ask? Um, so I, I've been mandated by my wife that I can only get him one pair in each size. <laughs> so I think he only has five or six pairs so far, but he has uh, he has four pairs of sneakers that I purchased matching pairs for me at the same time. And one of the highlights <laughs> of my life is when I can uh, take him somewhere and we're wearing matching shoes and everyone gets to see and comment on how adorable it is. <laughs> well, so, OK, well, let's get into this. So how has being a sneaker collector influenced your thinking around strategy? 
So from an overarching perspective, I think there's a real tendency, especially for people working in advertising, but maybe more for strategists than anyone else, to forget that we're people too. Like there's a little bit of a tendency to separate ourselves from the average customer or the average member of an audience, the average person who's out there. And I think you can learn a lot about the world of a passionate consumer by being a passionate consumer of something. So I think first and foremost, like really caring about a consumable good has made me better at my job because it's actually made it easier for me to empathize with uh, the, the people we're so often targeting, whether they be a casual uh, a casual fan of something or someone with a deep abiding interest, someone with a really strong loyalty, getting to see what that looks like personally through my own behavior has been really helpful. But that's just kind of a general thing. I say there's been I'd say there's been five really key things that I've learned, and I uh, I think the biggest one, the, the first one, is that in general niche communities are really beneficial for predicting the future of broader culture. And you won't always magically pick a niche community that knows everything, but being part of this niche community has been really helpful for me in being able to see the signs of behavior spreading outward and becoming more normalized across society. Can you give me an example of that? A hundred percent. So I think the biggest one would be uh, the culture of like uh, a drop release. Uh, this is something that's been happening in sneakers for years, where you'll know that a thing will be available at a certain time. People will just appear and sign up and be fighting to get it. They'll line up out the door. They'll be waiting for this big release moment. But that wasn't normal in most other types of release. Most other things weren't scheduled and publicized and prepared to that extent. But now you're seeing it happen not just in places where it was normal before, but uh, in terms of clothing, in terms of branded goods, you're seeing really similar culture happening around NFTs and crypto, where people are teasing that something is going to be happening at a certain time and building up a frenzy within a dedicated community, but not having people dive into it heads on. Hmm. Interesting. Um, why do you think that's happened? Well, I think in general, uh, in general, I would say when you get groups of people together, they establish their own little bits of weirdness. And then those sneak out into the broader world. So what works for one tiny audience, they, they hone it, they plan it. They realize that they have these dedicated people. They're going to show up and get these things at random times. They'll fight really hard to build relationships. They'll be checking in every week to get to know everyone in an individual store. And then someone walks in and says, you know, I want to take that one little slice of this culture. This seems like something meaningful and valuable. I want to adapt that into the way I run my coffee shop or the way we talk about marketing to people who might buy the t-shirts we sell. So more and more, I find that cross-pollination doesn't happen in the mass sense. It happens in these micro communities. And when something's successful in one, it finds its way into other places and other cultures. Well, I hadn't thought about that before. Um, okay, well, what's, what's the second thing you've observed? One of the things that's been really helpful for me is understanding and getting to getting to a place of comfort with the fact that in, in lots of communities, you'll have different definitions of value, and they'll be interacting at all times. So from a sneakers perspective, there's a couple of things that are always uh, that always come up when I hop on a call and someone sees me sitting in front of my giant wall of sneakers. Uh, but literally, my Zoom background is about 15 shelves with about five sneakers on each of them directly behind me. So that every call starts with a conversation about it. But I always get asked, first, which one is my favorite? And then which one's the most expensive if I'm comfortable answering that? And then how much have I spent on sneakers? Yeah, there's there's a couple of answers there. There's the like manufacturer suggested retail price, 
which for most sneakers ranges from, you know, the low hundreds to maybe the high 200s in terms of price. There are a couple of pairs that go over, but that's what you'd pay at a store if you were to pick them up. If something's limited edition, it sells out. There's a resale value that comes into play. And this is no longer like the intrinsic sale price of the product. It's a limited number of people bought them, a limited number of people are willing to sell them. So a pair of shoes that I got for $165 might be able to be reselled, resold for $750 or $800. Then there's also the people who are just obsessed with this specific design or the story behind something. Either it speaks to them at an artistic or an emotional level, or it touches on an important memory in their life. And then for that person, this individual thing is priceless. So I, I can look at a pair of shoes that's sitting on my shelf, and I can, in my head, have the idea that like this was a $210 pair of shoes that in mint condition I could probably sell for $1,500, but I would never get rid of it because I remember the specific moment I got it. I was wearing it when this thing happened, and it reminds me of this great moment in basketball history. And being able to look at those things with those different definitions of value and being able to kind of port that thinking over into other elements and other areas is really helpful when you're thinking about how to market someone a car or an investment account for their future. When you're digging into the idea that, yes, there's a price and yes, there's a functionality associated with this, but what other definitions or other beliefs as to the value and the meaning of this thing are going to influence someone's connection to it, someone's willingness to, uh, to prioritize this purchase over another one or to invest in something longer term. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. Differing, differing perceptions of value based on your relationship with it. Well, the fun thing is it also leads you to a place of haggling with people over value. There have been times where I really wanted a pair of shoes and someone's perception of what it was worth and my perception of what it was worth just didn't align. And digging into that and understanding where our different perceptions of value, not just monetarily, but kind of emotionally and culturally came from, was really beneficial for finding common ground conversationally, even if I never ended up buying the thing at an inflated price. All right. What's number three? Uh, number three. And it's funny because I have my list here, but I did not put it in any order. So I'm just kind of jumping around. Uh, number three is kind of related. But uh, what really jumped out at me a few years ago when I was explaining to someone the story behind the Air Jordan 1 was how, how what something stands for can really define or redefine what the thing actually is. So we're having a conversation about uh, the black and red Air Jordan 1, which is referred to as the bread, which is kind of contraction, or banned uh, Air Jordan 1, largely because there was a period where Michael Jordan was getting fined for wearing them in games in the 80s because it didn't, uh, didn't go along with the, uh, the NBA's dress code. So consistent conversation. This became a, a legendary piece, largely because it had this huge apocryphal story behind it. And over the course of the conversation, uh, the friend I was chatting with kind of stopped me and said, so what you're saying is, this is not just a pair of shoes. This is like a piece of art and a cultural touchstone. And that completely shifted the conversation we're having, largely because it started from a place of derision. It was like, what kind of functional adult spends this much time investing in something? But it was really valuable for me to be able to have that conversation up and stop and say like, oh, I see. So this is not a utilitarian object. This is an art object for you. And that kind of representation can lead to great reframing, which I think is a central thing in strategy is kind of reframing one challenge into another and understanding how a thing can mean or represent different things to different people. And so being having that like front row seat to watching people understand that kind of passion and understand where it comes from has been hugely valuable for me. Mm. That's like masterful positioning right there, going from sneaker to piece of a uh, cultural touchstone. Wait, what was that? Did I get that right? <laughs> Artistic cultural touchstone. It's uh, one of the things that I've had to do because collecting anything makes you weird. 
And I think one of the superpowers of a strategist is the ability to embrace being weird and enjoy being weird. Like generally, we're kind of weird people. We're people who can get incredibly excited about minutia, and we're people who can find what's interesting in things that other people might find absolutely crushingly boring. Like you get a room of strategists together and you can have a legitimately excited conversation about overdraft fees. If you've got the right research there, you've got the correct people talking about it. So for me, being able to explain to people why sneakers are interesting to me, being able to like draw a parallel between, you know, multimillionaires might collect cars and they love the history and each of one of those things and the, the engineering of it and the name of the designer. I, I can do the same thing with the sneaker collection, even though it feels like a very different set of objects. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, what's number four? Number four. I think the, the thing that I have realized that has really shaped my own research and shaped my own behaviors is that most small communities have a secret code. And a key I use when doing research or trying to understand a small community is when you hear a conversation that sounds like absolute gibberish, but it's clear that two other people are communicating with each other, you have found actual community. When you see two sneakerheads having a conversation about sneakers, you will hear terms that you do not hear in normal human conversation. You will hear someone talking about uh, talking about how they have a dead stock pair and ten and a half, but it's really important to them that uh, that you have the laces from this specific limited edition thing referred to by a nickname that never appeared on a box if you want to do a trade. This kind of really niche language has actually been really fascinating for me as we've dug into, and as I'm sure everyone is lately, more projects around the world of Web3 and crypto. Where once I realized I was catching people saying things that I didn't understand and I needed to start doing some Googling to understand the fluent community, uh, the fluent conversation, I realized I'd stumbled into some real areas of community and that was when I could actually learn something. So that for me, that process of seeking out and then recognizing when there's kind of a secret code in a community has been hugely valuable to get to some, uh, get some observational insights, especially in niches and smaller groups that may not be super welcoming to, uh, to being asked direct questions, it's made my lurking on Reddit threads a lot more pro- a lot more uh, valuable and profitable. Being able to kind of look for that specific thing. I, I mean, it seems like in marketing we spend a disproportionate amount of our time thinking and talking about personas or individual profiles, and yet everything that we've talked about so far has been about tribes and groups and how communities operate. Um, does does that factor into how you approach strategy? I think that's a fantastic, I think that's a fantastic lens on the conversation. For, for me, an individual person, understanding an individual person under themselves is really broken context because someone's interiority isn't necessarily where they, where they make decisions or where they perform. Like we're very often explaining our actions or justifying our actions to each other. So I feel like a person in their community, in their group or their family or their tribe is probably a more accurate view of who they are and what drives them than looking at them as their own completely isolated individual. Like I do, a thing I find deeply funny is the level to which we as an industry tend to focus on separating out a unique individual into a specific persona. And yet the only other time we look at people in that much isolation is when they've committed a crime and we're trying to figure out why. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's also interesting to think about people can obviously be part of different tribes and so act differently in different you know, ways, depending on what the context of the situation is or who they're with. Oh, definitely. I, one of the things I find very funny is when I run into someone else who loves sneakers in a setting that has nothing to do with that. 
is it the instant bonds of community that pop up when you share an interest, especially a niche interest with someone who uh, you may share context, but not a ton else with is really interesting how immediately walls fall down to like being able to establish a rapport over a shared interest will link people together in a really strong way, even if they have nothing else in common, which kind of breaks a lot of the a lot of the persona thinking that we get into sometimes where we have this really tight demographic niche and we pretend these are the only people who are going to care. But, you know, the people who care could be anyone. Yeah. So linking over kind of passions or interests as opposed to age or income or something. I, I, I would completely agree. I mean, th- there are times where a specific demographic point makes sense because that is the life stage or the age group or the behavior set where a product's going to be most relevant. But if you're selling something that people could pick up at any time, I mean, you, you could be relevant to uh, a completely unrelated demographic than the one that you may be targeting, the one you may have thought of initially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, what's your, what's your final uh, inspiration that's come from being a sneakerhead? Well, it, it has really influenced one specific lens that, uh, that plays a role in how I look at kind of all of marketing, which is that the relationship between consumption and identity is a thing that we were super open about in some areas and super not open about in others. But fundamentally, I think that it, it's made it really clear to me the level to which a lot of the things we buy are tiny pieces of the identity or the self-conception that we're building. Which sounded a little heady, but like I, I do see a real connection between the things a person chooses to consume and the way they think of themselves. And it's been interesting as as a bit of a collector, as as someone who you know wears a different pair of sneakers every day. It's been interesting realizing through my actions what I am consciously or unconsciously saying about myself, and then kind of putting that same lens towards other people I meet. And looking at uh, what people might be thinking or saying when we're actually providing them with a new product or trying to give them a new uh, a new sense of a new sense of what something stands for and what it will communicate about them post purchase. But it must have been killing you during the last two years when you couldn't show your feet. Well, though you had your shelves in the back, but if that that was a massive part of your self expression, right? <laughs> It's I I am not exactly a, like an experimental fashion person. 90% of the time I'm wearing a pair of black jeans and a black t-shirt. So not going outside a lot. It's it's actually been a little heartbreaking sometimes. Like we just started returning to office at Diamond and it's been great like getting to see the strategy team every week, getting to connect with people. We kind of go in for collaboration time, but the amount of time I've spent agonizing over the decision of what pair of shoes I'm going to wear every time I get on the streetcar and head to the office is, it, it would be funny if it wasn't a little sad, but I think I'm okay with that. All right. So let me see here. The five things that being a sneakerhead has taught you about being a strategist, um, that niche communications can help predict the future of culture, that people have different definitions of value, that... We, what was the third one? The third one, I think, was that what a thing stands for can redefine what it is. Mm. Yep. Um, Most small communities understand a secret code was number four. And then five was about what your consumption habits uh, reveal about your identity. Yeah, either the one you have or the one you're trying to build. Like, I, I do think a lot of this was really focused on community for me. Like, this, this is... 
it's it's not a thing that exists in isolation. Like it, it's an individual consumer behavior, but you are part of this broader community of people who are on one hand kind of fighting against each other to get the same stuff, but on the other hand, who take as a little bit of a sense of pride in being part of this niche community and putting in the time and the effort and the research to speak this language. But what was interesting to me is the role that that, that community interaction plays in kind of your sense of self and your definition of self. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. And, and, um, have you any other ways that you've used these kind of learnings or lenses on, on some of your work beyond what you've already talked about? I, I think one thing that's been really helpful, especially as like sneaker culture has become a broader thing, is sometimes it's hard to convince people that the strategist can know about a thing that's cool. <laughs> so sometimes they're like, that's great. But if you could stop talking about culture and let me talk to the cool art director with the awesome haircut, that would be really helpful strategy guide. But if you have a statistic for me, that would be fantastic. So I, I think sometimes it's been helpful to actually have a foot in a thing that is pop culturally relevant and engaging, because we're not just here to talk about what the latest research report said. Like ideally, a strategist should be steeped in culture and should be comfortable engaging in conversations around culture. But getting the permission to play that role is a thing that's not always easy to earn with people's preconceptions about you know us being the nerds. Yeah, yeah. No, I like that. You get to be a cool nerd with great shoe collection. <laughs> That's basically um, the goal. <laughs> uh, last question. La- latest pair of shoes you bought and why? So yesterday at around 4.45 p.m., a pair of Adidas Ultra Boost 22s arrived. And I bought them largely because they looked incredibly comfortable. And they are probably the most comfortable thing I've ever put on my feet. Uh, but I, I was driven to purchase them. I was driven to purchase them 50% because they looked like they would be incredibly comfortable and 50% because there was a really good sale going on. So I am sometimes motivated purely by economics. Or someone's perception of the value. Or someone's <laughs> perception of the value. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for giving us this uh, very different lens on strategy. Appreciate it. Oh, no problem. I think uh, I think finding different experiences in your life and using them as a way of looking at strategies is a really great way to interrogate your practice. It's uh, one of the truths about this, about this is like a, a line of work is that very often we're doing the same things with slightly different names or slightly different orders and trying to brand them as truly unique kind of ownable agency processes. And there's nothing wrong with that. Every agency has their own unique take on things. But I think sometimes just diving into new ways of engaging with people and new, age and new ways of engaging with culture and commerce can be really great for kind of revisiting those core fundamental tasks that we all kind of bake into our process. Hmm. You're just lucky you're into like sneakers as opposed to stamps or something, (laughs) which is nowhere near as cool. Well, I I tend to pick really, I I tend to pick interests at like just the right and or wrong time. Like I I was a person who was super into, super into comic books and superheroes before that became the topic of like 60% of summer blockbusters. I really got into sneakers right around the time they exploded and the price of everything went up. And now I'm getting more and more interested in watches. So I assume those are going to continue to get more expensive and complicate my life. (laughs) Great. Well, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to share your perspective. I really appreciate you making the time. This was a fun conversation. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Grow Up. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share this episode and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. 